Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we were offering six conversations from Season 3, Episode 25, four from our review of the Nash Drug Development in 2022 with Stephen Harrison, and two from our Extrasode, a summary of Magical Pharmaceuticals' presentation at this spring's Liver Connect meeting. Louise Campbell starts this conversation by noting her sources of optimism about drug development, the high likelihood that we're going to get a drug to market in the next couple of years, that that'll lead to better education, that FDA is looking for more inclusion and diversity in clinical trials, and her observation that in work and in life, patients are already starting to notice fatty liver disease. From there, the conversation turns to whether drug development has already proven safety and efficacy is achievable, as Jorn Schottenberg notes and Roger Green agrees. Jorn brings up the idea of quality of life as a third pillar to understand the value of these drugs besides their safety and efficacy. In the end, the last question focuses on what to new or surprising or see in the future. And the group agrees that not a lot of this conversation was surprising, but there's tremendous reason for optimism about what will happen in 2023 and 2024 in terms of drug development and with that an explosion of education and knowledge in the provider and patient communities. The entire drug development dialogue, including this conversation, link actual drug development as it continues this year to some of the issues that will determine how much we learn and how well these trials suit the purposes of all the key stakeholders. It's a broad look at a pivotal issue led by the irrepressible and insightful Dr. Harrison. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. When you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Louise Campbell. Um, getting a drug to market is important now for multiple reasons because it allows us to define the pathway. It allows us to see the interest and it allows us to get the education out. And once we set that landscape, any other medication coming through is going to be key. So unfortunately, we're obviously a couple of years behind with beta-colic acid not being approved a couple of years ago, but it, it's still likely to be the first one, I think it's been mentioned here, to be approved. And therefore, we can really start to write those pathways, the type of education, the type of people we're looking for, that will assist every other drug that comes into the marketplace and, and gets approved. I think the FDA are also keen throughout their study program on increasing equity and diversity and have announced that you have to enroll people of different ethnic minorities. I think they've set some parameters on that. I think that was released in March of this year and that's going to help some trials. It's probably going to be restrictive and require a little bit of thinking for other clinical trials and um, to ensure that you get that population mix. But I think it's certainly looking encouraging from my perspective to obviously be able to drill down into the information that we're going to have to give to patients, members of the public, people about what the type of medications are, how they're going to be given modes of actions and how we put them into the real world. But we're not there yet. As I've said, a lot will come forward in NAFL pathways after we get the first drug, because we then will see that awareness build. And I already have conversations with people say, oh, why so-and-so, a friend of mine's been diagnosed with fatty liver. People are more aware of it in certain areas. So it is a common disease that now people are starting to become aware of. So let's see what the first drug to market does. Jörn Schattenberg. Thinking back of how Stephen started this uh, session out, and I'll have to go back and listen to it myself again, just to refresh on all the, all the MOAs and companies he mentioned. You know, the important thing is even 
if obidicolegazid wasn't approved, you can achieve the endpoint of fibrosis regression in that time frame we're currently studying if you have a drug that hits the target and obidicolegazid achieved that. Some people say, well, it's just 10% over placebo. My answer to that is fibrosis regression takes time. You cannot expect to roll back these fibrosis stages in all patients in these limited timeframes. And as such, I'm very excited to see the 48-month data evolve. But bottom line is, it's doable. And you know, there's a lot of investors and companies sitting at the sideline. The good news is we can do it. We just need the right drug and that will be emerging from that pipeline, I'm convinced. You know, the path forward is a little bit more complex with the combinations takes longer time and so on. But clearly in monotherapy, we've shown it before and I think we're there and we'll show it again. So you are, it's interesting, the juxtaposition, and, and I think you just did that in two sentences a little more clearly than Stephen did, although he's certainly going in the same direction, which is if you take a look at the Maestro Naffold 1 data on safety and you take a look at the OCA data on efficacy, we've now proven that you can hit each half of that in the liver. And OCA not being, even if it wasn't deemed safe enough at that point in time, people have been on it for a long time, as you point out, and to the degree we've seen resmeterum efficacy data so far, we have reason to be hopeful. So we've proved we can hit each half of the equation, and there's a hope that either one of those drugs or both can swing both ways, number one. Number two, my guess is that in this market, combination therapy is going to mean vitality because it's going to mean that either by acquiring multiple assets, as Stephen noted, Novo has done, Turns has done, others are doing, or by shaping partnerships, there will be lots of different ways for people to bring product to market. And that should keep research engaged and it should keep people optimizing, pushing towards an optimized drug therapy over time. So I, th- I think those are two, frankly, really encouraging signs. It would be nice if we could get one proof of concept that had everything in the same place, get it over the finish line. And at that point in time, one thing that happens as we've all discussed on multiple occasions is billions of dollars come into this market, both in terms of investment and in terms of education. And we start to make the medical community smarter, faster about at least, if not what we do for well care, certainly what we do for sick care. And we develop drugs in wholesale. The question people ask me about that I've got no clue on, frankly, no real clue on is exactly what the timeline is for all this. But I, I know the timeline for Resmeterom would be anticipated to be sometime in 23. Lanny, if I understand correctly, 24, if everything goes right. So we shouldn't be that far off. By the time we get to the end of the year, we should know whether the Resmeterom data is going to be strong enough to look safe and efficacious at the same time. We thought we knew that with OCA, but I think we're a little chastened now. But that would be my sense, at least. Does that make sense to you too, folks? No, I agree with the timelines. I think, you know, the other phase three we've discussed is semaglutite, and they're well on track and rolling. I'm thinking they're getting that conditional approval subcohort finished this year. And, uh, you know, that will then read out down the line. And it's been it's been quite a journey. Um, and, and it's a little bit more to go, but they will be uh, they will be reporting out. And, um, and that's the good news. As we set up our coverage for uh, Easel, and even frankly, whatever coverage we have, Fifth Global Nash, one of the things we will want to do is look at those issues. Um, I mean, at Fifth Global Nash, we'll have Louise and Rachel Zayas, they're interviewing uh, people among them, drug company execs about their studies. And if we send the right questions in the right direction, I think we'll be able to get some feedback from folks who are there. Magical will be there. Um, Poxel will be there. Hepion will be there. I'm missing three or four of them. Please forgive. And then obviously Easel, everybody will be there. There's a late breaker on semaglutide and cirrhosis. There's a late breaker from Meister Naffold 1 that they've already announced. And then there are all the abstract sessions. We'll start talking on this podcast in the next couple of weeks about how we're going to cover Easel. Um, as soon as we figure out the logistics of doing that large live event for anyone who heard our NASHTAG com- coverage, you know it's harder to do live than it is to do virtual. 
virtual. And the good news is we'll all be in London. The bad news is we'll all be in London. So it's going to be a little complicated, but we're looking forward to it. If anyone, you can do it, Roger. I hope so. I, I plan. Let's put it this way. I don't really hope so. You are. And I plan to. I just haven't figured out all the details yet. And thank you for your vote of confidence. Let me loop back one more time. You know, you mentioned the, the safety data and the efficacy data. I think both are important. The third pillar I'm seeing here is the quality of life data that we haven't uh, routinely thrown into that equation yet. And there is some, even in the published domain now, some improvements with FXRs of certain energy and pain domains. And I think these type of, sometimes they're considered softer, but it's even an approvable endpoint. They're using validated quality of life tools. And now if you have a patient improve how he functions and you improve the surrogate of survival, and you maintain an acceptable safety profile, and you have three pillars that kind of point the right way. And I think throwing that into the equation will uh, will back up the drug development arena. Boy, it certainly should, shouldn't it? I mean, if, if you can, quality of life is, as you point out correctly, what's unspoken here. We know that people with NAFLD, forget NASH, NAFLD, score lower on quality of life scales than others do. So you would think that if we can track that through the drug studies, that's a good thing. So in closing, just either take your pick, either the one thing that came out of today's conversation that surprised you or made you think about things a little differently, or if you don't have an answer to that, what's the one thing you're looking forward to the most in the rest of 2022 to tell us where all this is going? I think I'll jump in. I think the one thing that surprised me, although I probably knew it was the absolute breadth of the mechanisms and the method of action that these drugs are targeting across all of the drugs that are in investigation currently is just amazing. And I think the future is looking bright. Um, And if I have to think couple of years forward. I'm fairly sure we will have, as Sean has said, and Stephen, that we'll have mechanisms now, then in the real world that we'll be able to do. And I think going back to Jean's point that he's just made, it takes me to Jose in Barcelona. Don't tell us what you want us to think. Tell us what we'll tell you what we need. And a patient needs an improved quality of life. A patient needs to have a more stable life and a stabilization of their disease. So bringing it back to what the patients have requested doesn't necessarily meet the endpoints currently set, but we're getting there. And I think that's the exciting part. Thanks, Louise Jordan. Well, um, I guess uh, my ref- or Stephen's reflection on uh, where he comes from, where he wants to be, and uh, that he's in transition, uh, which is true for most drugs, uh, reminded me how we agreed on the endpoints now. And his opening statement was, we're still in the same arena. We have clearly defined approval pathways, and we're not starting to then all of a sudden read out biopsies a different way because they, we've learned that it won't help to change the order, how they're read or reread the baseline therapy, and then throw out one quarter of all the cases that have been enrolled, it's good to be reminded that we have clearly set a regulatory approval pathway. We have better defined how to assess those endpoints, you know, with all the discussion around sampling variability, inability or variability, and um, that really moved the field forward, I think. And then in addition, the number of NITs we're doing today compared to earlier trials with all the depth of knowledge emerging from that. And then, of course, the ability to link that to endpoints, which will eventually lead us beyond the biopsy. And that hasn't really come up that term yet because we're, we're not in the position to discard biopsy for uh, accelerated approval yet, but we're on a good way based on all these studies that are ongoing and all the NITs that are being explored. So you are now is a good job of teeing up next week's episode when we're hoping to have Quentin Anstey join us and talk about what happened at the recent Litmus event entirely about NITs and moving that forward. The last few minutes of this conversation has, I think, made really an important point, right? Around, around quality of life. 
and that being, if, if you will, in some ways, the missing piece. We mentioned Quentin and the European FLD registry. I mean, there's been a tremendous work the guy puts in there, and there's been strong data that emerged from the European investigators. And we've looked at some of that, the context of quality of life, and we actually were able to correlate lobular inflammation with decreased quality of life in these patients. Now, that hasn't been consistently reported from other cohorts, but be reminded that, you know, again, the variability of assessment of uh, inflammation could add to that. And bottom line, what it told me, it's a it's a paper I think we published in 2019 in APT, that the degree of inflammation in the liver impacts on the quality of life. And if we're able to change that, as Louise and Jose mentioned, this is what counts for the patient. It's that right upper quadrant pain if you have an inflamed liver. Stephen mentioned liver size at one point. It's the splenomegaly I see as a referral reasons. And I, I do see a certain correlation with that right upper quadrant, which kind of gives you the discomfort and the, and, and the impaired quality of life. So that's all very closely linked. It's directly linked to the MOAs we're using to target inflammation. It's directly linked to pathophysiological changes. It's nothing the patient comes up with, you know, I don't feel well and we cannot grab that. So it's based on all the data we are seeing, very relevant, and that should improve. You know, That's why I like those uh, quality of life measures a lot. Yeah, we agree. And this wouldn't be the first disease we've ever seen where an awful lot of stuff got coded as depression and turned out to be actually physiological in nature. So I, I think that's a wild card. I think it will also be extremely interesting, as Yuan points out, to see what the 48-month data shows on a beta-colic acid, because if a drug that was dinged for not being sufficiently safe carries patients 48 months without endpoint, without safety, without MACE or MALO endpoint of any significant note, then we start to, on the safety side, separate the hypothetical from the real. And I think that would be a, one way or another, I think that'll be a big plus if it turns out that hypothetical turns into real, it will help us figure out how to do this better. If it turns out that hypothetical does not turn into real, it will make it easier to get things to the finish line. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next week with Stephen and Professor Quentin Anstey discussing what we've learned in the past year about non-invasive testing, histopathology, and best practices in diagnostics. Until then, stay safe and surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.